Almost every conceivable stat that you would go in picking this game supports Oregon winning the game. But here's the problem. This Washington team feels a little bit like 2019 LSU right now. There's just some things that you see on the football field that just blow your mind. And every time I watch Washington's offense, they blow my mind. I think LSU in 2019 was similar to that. So I don't know. This one's going to be fascinating. We will break it down in detail here in just a moment. Welcome to Always College Football. Today's Thursday, October 12th. We hope you're enjoying the show wherever it is you're consuming the show, whether that's on Spotify, whether that's on Apple Podcasts, or if you're here with us via the ESPN YouTube channel. If you're on the YouTube channel, hit that thumbs up right below. It means a lot to us. We appreciate you guys being here. And if you're on the podcast, whether it's Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast, if you could subscribe, then if you could rate, that'd be amazing. We really, really appreciate it. I'm Greg McElroy. Along with me are Mark Kubiak, Jack Foster, and Jake Garcia. We have a fantastic lineup of games this weekend that we want to break down. I, I really think, and look, I've, I listen to all the breakdowns. I listen to all the podcasts. There are so many good podcasts out there for college football. There's so many good ones. A lot that have bias built in, which I can live with. We here at Always College Football believe in taking off whatever colored glasses that we have and talking about the games through an unfiltered lens. We do the best we possibly can to try to give you every possible angle, to have you as prepared as possible to consume college football Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. We are so excited about the breakdown, so let's not waste any additional time. Let's get to it. The battle in the Northwest involving Washington and Oregon. This weekend preview is brought to you by Dr. Pepper. It's not college football season without the delicious taste of an ice cold Dr. Pepper, the one fans deserve. Start with the game of the weekend. Number eight, Oregon, traveling to number seven, Washington. That'll be Saturday, 3.30 Eastern time on ABC. There's about 10 games in the Pac-12 this year that I'm really excited about. So this obviously, I don't know if it's at the top, but it's dang close. That's for sure. You think about what last year was, okay? It was a thriller, 37-34. It was in Eugene, and obviously going to Eugene and getting a win for Washington is not something that comes easy. The last time they did that prior to last year was 2016. They, of course, made the playoff that year, but the Ducks were up 31-27 and methodically driving down the field when Bo Nix got hurt, which kind of crushed all their momentum, and that was... Obviously, in the fourth quarter, and he returned to the game in the final minute, but it wasn't it wasn't enough. And ultimately, Washington got the job done. So this has been a big point of contention. The what if Bo Nix didn't get hurt last year? Would the outcome have been different? We, of course, have long documented the quarterback conversation here. And while they won't be on the field against each other, and some people have astutely noted that uh, in some of their breakdowns on other shows, we're keenly aware that both Michael Penix and Bo Nix will not be on the field directly facing off against one another. But it is of note that these are clearly two of the best quarterbacks in the country, but they are very different with how they're effective. Michael Penix is about pushing the ball down the field. 35 completions of 20 plus yards. That's the second most in the FBS. The only one that he would be behind in that category is Jaden Daniels at LSU. Washington remarkably has notched 43 scrimmage plays of 20 yards or more in the first five games. That's the highest per game average in the country. So it's pretty wild when you think about just how explosive they've been. It's really pretty wild. And then on Bo Nix, on the other side, more methodical, very efficient, not going to push the ball down the field as often, but will kind of methodically work his way down the field with what I think is a pretty underappreciated receiver core in general. Now, Bo Nix has been in a lot of these situations in the past. I was actually kind of surprised to come across this nugget. Nobody in college football history on Saturday, of course, will have started more games than Bo Nix. Bo Nix, as of this moment, has 52 career starts. Of course, 53 will come this weekend. That's the most ever by a starting quarterback in college football history. The two that he's tied with, that would be Jake Browning of Washington and Clayton Thorson of Northwestern. I was a little bit surprised on the back end, but you would think that'd be someone from the COVID era. But no, Jake Browning and Clayton Thorson. Both have been really smart with the football. Nix has one interception, the only turnover for Oregon, I might add. And 
Penix just two interceptions. And you think about where Knicks is, 80% completion rate, been really, really solid. One other thing of note too, Bo Nix, and this has long been documented, has not been great on the road relative to how he's played at home. 27 starts at home, dating back to his time at Auburn, 22 and five at home, win-loss, with 49 to four touchdown interception ratio. It's pretty ridiculous. At Autzen Stadium, it's even better than that, 26 and two. But now on the road, he's 12 and eight and 28 touchdowns against just 15 interceptions. So you go basically 12 to one touchdown interception ratio on at home versus a little less than two to one when he's on the road. It's a little different guy when he goes into a hostile environment. It's, I think, a little bit of an advantage in favor of Washington, but not by much when evaluating the two quarterbacks and how they're playing at the moment. Which team protects their quarterback a little bit better? They both do a pretty dang good job. Bo Nix has been pressured fewer than anybody in college football. They've had just three sacks, nine quarterback hurries and 10 pressures and 183 dropback attempts. That's an absurd number. So the offensive line for Oregon up to this point has fared quite well. They might fare well again on Saturday, knowing that Washington's pass rush has been anemic as of this moment. They have just six sacks on the season through five weeks, and their best player, Braylon Trice, he had nine sacks last year. That was one of the best in the Pac-12. He's had just one this year. He has affected the quarterback some with hurries, but that Washington pass rush has to step up in a game like this because Bo Nix has had a clean jersey all season long. And if that trend continues, it will be very difficult for Washington to ultimately win the game. Washington, by the way, no slouch protecting their quarterback. I actually think their tackles are excellent. Absolutely excellent. But you also think too, Oregon, while their sack numbers are good, half of their sacks for the most part came against Colorado. And we all know what Colorado is along the front. We've kind of referenced the weapons. Oregon's got Troy Franklin. He's amazing. Washington has a trio that is off the charts good that we'll get to here in just a second. I think one of the big question marks in this game is Oregon's far more balanced than Washington. They want to run the football. That's who they are. They're averaging over seven yards a carry. It's the highest rate per carry in the FBS. And those numbers are inflated because of a game against Portland State early in the year. But even if you remove Portland State's performance in Oregon's total, they're still averaging over 6.2 yards per carry, which would still lead all teams in college football. So I think that will be significant. Can Washington limit Oregon's rushing attack? Because if they can get the running game going, behind Bucky Irving and Jordan James, the dynamic one-two punch. That'll be really difficult, I think, knowing that there are some question marks in the front seven defensively for Washington and the back end, which was the huge question mark coming into the year. If they have to apply an extra guy out of the box to take away the run, then you're going to get some legitimate one-on-ones. The matchup of the game, though, and it's strength versus strength. It's Washington's weapons against Oregon's defensive backs. Definitely the matchup of the game. Now, the Huskies, I I know you're not allowed to say this because heaven forbid anybody be better than Ohio State at the wide receiver position. But I'm telling you, if take Ohio State out of it, if I could have anybody, I want Washington's weapons. I think they are that good. Roma Dunze, big play threat, wins the 50-50s, creates big plays, way down the field. The guy's just, he's a first round pick. I mean, he's the real deal. But Jalen McMillan hasn't played since the Michigan State game, expected to be back this year. He's gone over 300, or he's gone over 103 games this year. Jalen Polk in McMillan's absence has stepped up. Maybe not, you know, quite as crazy talented as the other two, but his productivity speaks for itself and has really elevated his play of late. They're obviously a real strength. But, Oregon's defensive backs are one of the best in college football. Now, they're top five in pass defense, giving up just about 150 a game. And they're first in passing yards allowed per attempt, under five yards an attempt. We know what we know what Washington is. They're like 11 yards per attempt. So they're extremely explosive, but the Ducks have done a great job in that aspect. They've yet to allow a 300-yard passing a game from any quarterback, and they've played Shador Sanders. And Shador Sanders had 159 yards against him. That's 258 below his 417 yards per game average. That was second in the country entering that game. So that is a good versus good 
analysis where Oregon does have a significant advantage, I think is on the defensive side of the football. Now that's Dan Lanning's background and they're significantly improved on that side of the ball, allowing just 12, 12 points per game. That's fifth in college football. Last year, they averaged 27. So they've improved drastically in that area. They've obviously done a great job in the back end. They're pretty good when it comes to rushing the passer as well. Whereas Washington, everyone was really concerned about the secondary. That group's been okay, but it's really the front seven that has yet to play their best football. And if they don't in this game, it could be a little bit sideways. I'm also going to point to the trends in this one. Oregon's 5-0 and against the spread this year. They're the only Pac-12 team that's undefeated against the spread. And Oregon's 15-3 and against the spread against Washington's start of 2004. Washington's failed to cover each of the last four games following a bye week, too. So all the trends are pointing towards Oregon in this one. All the stats, all the metrics, everything is on the side of the Ducks. So basically, I'll sum it up like this. Almost every conceivable stat that you would go in picking this game supports Oregon winning the game. But here's the problem. This Washington team feels a little bit like 2019 LSU right now, where they're going to be great games, great teams that look statistically superior and maybe more well-rounded, like Alabama was in 2019, like Clemson was in the national championship in 2019, maybe Auburn in that year who obviously did a pretty good job against LSU, but it didn't matter because Michael Penix is that good and this receiving core is that good. I'm taking Washington to win the game. I think they get it done at home, and I think it's actually a little bit lower scoring than what some people might anticipate. UCLA... At Oregon State, I love this game. Love this game. Now, some of the historical elements going into this one, they're trying to win on the road against a ranked opponent for the first time since 2019. That day, they beat Washington State. That was 67-63 in a crazy comeback performance. So obviously, Chip Kelly and company trying to kind of update things with that stat. They have one of the best defenses in America. Absolutely amazing. And you look at what they did last week to Washington State. They allowed less than half of the average points per game that Washington State had coming into the game. They allowed less than half of the yards that Washington State had coming into that game in that game. So they have indeed found themselves on the defensive side, thanks to new coordinator Danton Lynn. I mean, Cam Ward hadn't thrown an interception prior to last week. Well, he threw two. Okay, two. Alex Johnson got himself one. <laughs> and uh, Femi Oladejo intercepted a pass as well. They forced eight picks this year. That's tied for most in the country. And it's not just the interceptions that UCLA is forcing. They're also forcing a bunch of fumbles too, man. I mean, a bunch of fumbles. But this game is going to be decided along the line of scrimmage. We know who Oregon State is, right? They're an offense that wants to run the football. Their offensive line is their star without question. But guess what? UCLA's front seven, this is strength versus strength. They have excellent backs, Oregon State does, with Damian Martinez, Deshaun Fenwick. They have one of the best run games in the country. They can do so many great things with Jonathan Gray and Talisi Fuaga, who, as of right now, is a little banged up, but it's been reported that it shouldn't keep him out. That's something that I'd evaluate. Will Oregon State's offensive line be at 100%? And then on the defense side, who they're going up against, UCLA is ridiculous. Top five nationally in run defense, they allow less than 65 yards per game on the ground. They have unbelievable linebacker pet play. Darius Muasau uh, is amazing. Kane Madrano is amazing. These guys are legit at the second level. The front four gets after you. They have a ton of sacks, and they have some guys that could completely take over the game, like Liatu Latu, maybe the best pass rusher in the country. He's got five sacks this year already. So this will be a really tough test for the Beaver offensive line that has only given up six sacks at the halfway point. So to put it in perspective, man, while UCLA's sack numbers aren't necessarily leading college football, their pressure numbers are. So meanwhile, A&M, they have the most sacks, but they only have 91 pressures, 26 sacks with 91 pressures. UCLA has 18 sacks, but they have 116 pressures. So how does DJ perform, DJ Uyunglele, against pressure? Well, I'll tell you, it's not great. He's 67th in the country in completion percentage when under pressure. Only 267 yards under pressure. That's 42nd. Now he's got to face the best pass rush he's seen just yet. I don't like his chances. And then Dante Moore, true freshman. I get it. He struggled the last time he went on the road against Utah. It wasn't pretty 
by any stretch of the imagination. But I look at what happened against Oregon State's defense last week, and it wasn't pretty for them either going against a young quarterback in Cal who put up 40 points in the process. So all the trends point to Oregon State. They're 10-1 against the spread at home since 2021. They're 15-1 against spread out right in their last 16 games. Uh, their one loss to USC, where USC, I think, forced like 10 interceptions in that game. All the trends point to Oregon State. I'm taking UCLA. Why? Because I think UCLA has the best group in the game, and that's the defense. This group is tenacious, and I would expect Dante Moore to take advantage of a defense that is not playing great football at the moment. Another massive game that we're all really looking forward to, number 10 USC at number 21 Notre Dame. This will be on NBC at 7.30 Eastern time on Saturday night. The quarterback matchup is definitely heavily in favor of the Trojans in this one. Sam Hartman has not played elite level football, but he's played pretty good football. And while last week you look at the numbers and the interceptions and obviously the turnovers, last week was one that he'd like to have back. But man, he's made a lot of really good throws. I mean, you think about the touchdown passes, uh, you know, the to Jordan face on 36 yards, the 25-yard throw to Mitchell Evans on third and 14 with pressure in the backside as he released the throw. Like he's making good throws, but it hasn't been there consistently for Notre Dame. Over the last couple of weeks, Notre Dame's offense has struggled, man. Now, what I'm trying to figure out, though, have they struggled because of the competition that they're playing against or have they struggled because they're just not that good? Because there is a clear discrepancy with how they looked against Navy, Tennessee State, NC State and Central Michigan. NC State, by the way, not a bad defense. There's a clear discrepancy. And how they played against those teams where they averaged 46 points and 508 total yards of offense. Versus how they played against Ohio State, Duke, and Louisville, where they averaged 18 points and 343 total yards of offense. So the other thing that's concerning is that they've really struggled on third down. And they were, com they were converting more than half their third downs. Now they're down to 21%. I mean, that is clearly a huge issue. The good news is you have had some stars emerge. And while I've been somewhat disappointed with the wide receiver core from top to bottom, that was a big point of contention coming into the season. I do think they've found a star in Mitchell Evans. Now, this is almost sacrilegious to say this, but Mitchell Evans is a longer version of Michael Mayer. They're very, very similar. And I actually think Mitchell Evans' athleticism is in some ways superior to Michael Mayer. Now, is he ever going to be the consistent force that Michael Mayer was? I don't know. But if you look at him, I mean, he can kind of weave his way through traffic. He, he seems to find a way to go up and snatch the ball out of the air. He can run guys over. And there's a lot to like about what we've seen from Mitchell Evans up to this point. So I think he's going to be huge in this game because I don't think that there's a defender on USC's defense that will be able to handle Mitchell Evans in a one-on-one -on -one situation. And if for whatever reason they had to put a lot of attention on Mitchell Evans, hey, yeah, don't forget about me. I'm holding stays. I'm really athletic as well. And while I was underutilized last week, I would imagine him being a big part of the plan for Notre Dame moving forward because they got to get more out of holding stays. He's a dynamic weapon. Mitchell Evans has emerged as your go-to guy without question. I get that, but do not forget about the number two tight end who is equally capable with the ball in his hands. Is this a get-right situation for Notre Dame? Now, if you look at what USC has done, they've done a really good job generating pressure. I mean, they have, I think, actually been much better on the defensive side of the football this year as far as generating pressure. And that's a, that's a good starting point, right? That's a good starting point. If you can apply pressure on the opposing quarterback, that's a great place to start. Bear Alexander has had his moments. Obviously, the transfer from Georgia, Jamil Muhammad, Solomon Bird have been pretty good coming off the edge. I like what I've seen from the pressure numbers, but here's the problem for UCLA or USC, excuse me. Can't make that mistake. Here's the problem for USC is that they seem to be getting worse from a tackling standpoint. Maybe part of that has to do with the fact that the level of competition has improved the last couple of weeks. But you look at the first week, few missed tackles here or there. Look at the second week, few more. Look at the third week, a bunch. Fourth week, a whole lot. And then the last two weeks, it's like, goodness gracious, alive. Are you trying to tackle them? 
it's pretty remarkable just how they've regressed because usually it's very much the opposite. Week one, sloppy as can be when it comes to tackling. Week two, it gets a little better, a little better, a little better. So as the season goes along, you get better on that side of the ball, getting ball carriers to the ground. And that has not been the case for the USC defense. They have to tackle in this one because while Notre Dame is not crazy explosive, they do have some powerful players that are good with the ball in their hands. Can USC continue to create a lot offensively? The answer is yes. I think USC, no matter when they play the game, where they play the game, how they play the game, they're going to roll out and they're going to score close to 30. doesn't matter how good the defense is. And I think Notre Dame's defense is pretty fine. Now, if you look at how they played last week, I thought it was arguably the worst performance from Notre Dame's defense to date. They had terrible tackling. I think and by their standards, you had a, you know, Leah Fowl, for instance, had the face mask penalty, uh, you know, on the third and 15. That was a killer. So I would say that Notre Dame's defense, while last week was not a good indicator of future success, I do think this is without question the toughest test to date for USC's offense. Caleb Williams is amazing. He is amazing and has done such a great job developing a rapport with his wide receivers. Now, it'd be great if Zachariah Branch could get back because I think Zachariah Branch is the college football version of Tyreek Hill. Just get him the ball and watch what he does with it. So if he's back, that is a huge boost to the USC offense because I would imagine USC is going to try to make sure that Caleb Williams continues to try to make plays with his legs and continues to try to extend plays. That's when the big plays have happened for them up to this point. And if I'm Notre Dame, I want to keep him bottled up. I want to press the pocket. I want to collapse the pocket and make him uncomfortable and make him play from a traditional passing posture. If they can do that, then they might be able to slow them down. I'm not saying that you... Look, they're still got to score 30 to win, but they might be able to slow them down just Enough. A couple trends in this one. All five of USC's games against AP ranked opponents since last year have gone over the total. USC is, however, two and eight against the spread when the line's between three and minus three and plus three since 2016. And they're seven and 17 against the spread as an underdog since the start of, last, uh, since the, start of the 2015 season. I like Notre Dame in this game. I have not been impressed with what I've seen from USC up to this point. I think that there are aspects of their defense that have improved, but I also don't think they've played anybody. No disrespect to Colorado, no disrespect to Arizona, no disrespect to Stanford, no disrespect to San Jose State. I don't think they've played anybody. At least Notre Dame, on the heels of what's been a brutal, brutal four-game stand against Ohio State, Duke, Louisville, and now USC, I do think they are battle-tested. This group is weathered, and anytime I can get a team that does have some talent, and I know people might disagree with this, I think Notre Dame is well-coached. I got a team with some talent that's well-coached with their back against the wall in a desperate gotta-have-it situation. I like their chances. We all know that Caleb Williams' highs and moment came against Notre Dame last year. I would imagine the Irish have had this one circled for the better part of the last 52 weeks. We all know breakfast is an important part of your day, but sometimes when you're traveling for business, you end up staying at a hotel that doesn't offer any. You know what happens? You grab a cup of coffee and skip the meal entirely. We've all been there. But if you book a room at La Quinta by Wyndham, you can enjoy their free bright side breakfast featuring delicious baked goods, fruit, eggs, yogurt, and waffles. And really, who doesn't want to start their day with a fresh, hot waffle? Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book direct at LQ.com. Mmm. You smell that? That's the scent of fresh turf and freshly cracked Dr. Pepper which can only mean one thing. It's college football season. So block off your Saturdays and swipe a sweet Dr. Pepper from the mini fridge because there's a new season of high kicks, long throws, and Fansville commercial breaks to carry you all the way to the West Coast games. That's right. The fans are back and this year things are heating up. We're talking about hot takes, more heartbreak, more layers of face paint, Get ready to drink in all the drama this season with the help of the most delicious college football tradition there is, Dr. Pepper, the one fans deserve. The Texas A&M Aggies try to get back on track. On the road at number 19, Tennessee. Tennessee's a three-point favorite. It's going to be on CBS. That'll be Saturday at 3.30 Eastern time. Here's the most intriguing number of the game. By the numbers. 
Texas A&M, number one rushing defense in the SEC, giving up 84 yards a game. Tennessee, while we've long talked about their high-flying nature, that's not who they've been this year. They are the number one rushing offense in the SEC, 231 yards per game. A&M's defense, 84. Tennessee's offense, 231. Who wins in a battle of good versus good? Let's start with Tennessee's offense. Obviously, the three running backs are the stars of the show. Jalen Wright, Jabari Small, Dylan Sampson. They'll all split about 30 30 carries or so. Wright's kind of the violent guy. Uh, you know, runs hard. I think Small is, you know, a little bit, you know, more consistent as far as how he finishes. And then Sampson is the home run hitter. They all benefit certainly from the scheme, but I think they're all actually very talented. As well. And while Joe Milton, the starting quarterback, a lot of people assume that he'd just easily replicate the success that Hendon Hooker had, it hasn't quite been the case. They've kind of struggled to find consistency in the passing game, especially on the downfield throws. And when they're not using play action, it has not been very beneficial whatsoever. I do think they'll miss the size, strength, and reliability of Brew McCoy. So they'll rely a little bit more on Ramel Keaton, who at six foot three can cover a lot of ground, get in vertical. Squirrel White is the speed guy there in the slot that does have great top end speed, but can also do an amazing job of making you miss when he has the ball in his hands. The interesting game of cat and mouse in this one is that you clearly have a very good Tennessee offensive line that's playing, I think, pretty good football now that they are back to full strength after not being there for the better part of the first few weeks. But AM's a group that has been trying to dictate defensively all season long. And really the last three weeks, if you look at how Texas AM has kind of played, they're a little bit feast or famine. Like they're blitzing guys, they're overloading like they're heating other teams up, man. And as a result, they have 61 pressures over the last three games. And they're blitzing, it feels like, almost every time they drop back. But here's the problem. When you are a feast or famine approach, you're first in sacks in the SEC. That's great. But you're also seventh in passing plays allowed over 30 yards. So while they might be winning up front, they're putting what I think is a liability on islands in the back end. Now, this front for Texas A&M is legit. I mean, they are really good. They're big. They're physical. They have versatility. They have multiple guys that are 300 plus pounds that are still athletic enough to get home. You got the internal presence of McKinley Jackson. He's a big body dude that just eats up a lot of space. You have Shamar Turner on the edge, who is big, fast, has great burst, great bend. And then you have Walter Nolan, who's in there as well. All three of those guys can take over the game. So it's going to be very, very important to see whether or not Tennessee's offensive line can hold up against what I think is one of the more disruptive defensive lines in all of college football. Now, Tennessee's O-line, now that they've kind of moved some things around, Cooper Mays came back, referenced that one already, missed the first four weeks. That's certainly added a certain level of predictability there in the middle of that offensive line. Gerald Mincy played left tackle forever. They bring in a transfer. He switches over to right tackle, and now he's willing to play right tackle, and I think that's helped an awful lot. Well, he's going to have a tough assignment with Shamar Turner. Shamar Turner lines up almost all the time against the right tackle, and he's a handful. So it will be really interesting to see who wins that battle, the A&M defensive line or the Tennessee offensive line Will Tennessee be able to effectively run the football? And if they can, will AM be forced to bring extra guys into the box and maybe open themselves up to some big plays downfield? I'd roll the dice if I were AM. Make Joe Milton prove that he can hit the throws down the field because I'm not 100% convinced that he can. As far as Texas AM Aggies offense is concerned, you felt like the run game was getting ready to go. I mean, ULM, Auburn, Arkansas. They were starting to take off. And then against Alabama, they all came crashing back to earth. Now, Le'Veon Moss is a violent runner. He can really wear people down. He's not going to be able to, you know, he's not going to be a guy that you can bring down with one arm. Like you're going to have to square him up and make sure that you get him down, which is really, really important. 
because if you can't, he's a guy that can get off in this game. You also have a couple other backs that will spell him in Ruben Owens and Amari Daniels, who hasn't been great against Power 5 opponents as he was early in the season. But the other thing, too, about Texas A&M's offense, the passing game is kind of difficult to predict right now. Max Johnson has talent, but he's been inconsistent. Oftentimes last week, he's thrown off his back foot and led to some serious issues for the Aggies. And then you look at the volunteers on the other side, they have a fast, rangy edge presence with a bunch of pressures, a bunch of guys that can get home against an offensive line that has been really up and down. Keep an eye on Tyler Barron and James Pearson. This one, those are the edge rushers. They're both six, five. They can both convert speed to power, but they also have, I think some quickness up front that can be pretty problematic as well. They'll rotate a bunch of guys in there also, but something of note there, if for whatever reason, A&M's having a difficult time in protection. The Aggies wide receivers have been a little banged up with Evan Stewart and Noah Thomas. Now Stewart's obviously the downfield guy. Thomas is the long, rangy guy. So it's kind of been heavily put on the shoulders of Jake Johnson, the tight end, and Nia Smith, the slot player, who are both really, really good. Now look at the trends in this game. Texas A&M, 0-6-1 against the spread in which games where the line was between minus three and plus three since the start of the 21 season. A&M's 1-4 on the road against the spread since the start of last season. And Tennessee is 11-4 against the spread as a favorite since the start of last season. So everything is telling me to take A&M here. Or everything's telling me to take Tennessee here. I'm going to follow the trends in this one. I think Tennessee gets it done. A&M is a tough spot for them. You have a lot that goes into the Bama game. They come up short in the matchup. I hope that it doesn't have a hangover effect. Obviously, Tennessee has Bama next week, so it could be a look-ahead spot for them, but they're coming off a bye. I would expect a focused Tennessee group that takes care of business at home against the Aggies. Miami at North Carolina. Looking forward to being on the call for this one. This will be 7.30 Eastern time on ABC. Everyone's talking about Miami and their miscues at the end of the game last week. All right. I'm turning on podcasts, listening to college football coverage. All anyone's talking about is the end of game. That's it. No one's talking about the fact that Miami has been pretty good running the football. Nobody's talking about the fact that prior to last week, Tyler Van Dyke looks really, really comfortable. Nobody's talking about the fact that when Miami played against Texas A&M a couple weeks ago, their defense hit Connor Wigman, the starting quarterback for AM, about a thousand times. Like nobody's talking about all the good things that Miami has done up to this point to put themselves into position to play in a ranked game in the middle of October. I understand that we need to focus and we need to tell the story, and everyone's punching at Mario Cristobal, everyone's punching at the at the game clock decision making process at the end, but people are ignoring just how much progress Miami has made. Overall, let's talk about their offense just for a moment. This is a really talented group at pretty much every position. Tyler Van Dyke looks really comfortable in Shannon Dawson's offense. Now, I think he does occasionally force the football, and that came back to bite him. Last week, three interceptions in the game against Georgia Tech, and that ultimately was the difference in the battle. They also have really talented running backs that can make you miss. A couple of guys that have speed, versatility, Henry Parrish, Don Chaney. These guys are legit, really, really solid backs. And they have a really diverse group of wide receivers. You have tremendous length with Colby Young. You have great speed with Jacoby George. And then you have that reliability and dependability of Xavier Restrepo, who does an awful lot for you in a lot of different ways. He can play outside and inside. He's kind of all over the place. So you have three legit dudes on the wide receiver core for the Miami Hurricanes. And I think the offensive lines drastically improved from what they were a year ago. Another group that I also think is remarkably improved is North Carolina's defense. They are so much better than they were last year as far as creating disruption. I think they actually have difference makers along the front defensively. Gene Chizik has been much more aggressive with how he calls the game. They have been able to create a lot of pressure. If you look at just how they played against South Carolina, they had nine sacks in the game. Granted, that was forever ago, and they haven't been quite as good since. But this is a group that can get after you and really affect the opposing quarterback if they find a good feel for what you're doing in protection. And I would imagine that S that UNC will have a good plan going into this game on North Carolina's offense. We all know who they are. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty clear. It's Drake may man. He, he does it all himself. Doesn't have to, but he does. And I think so much of his game is dependent on him finding creases and, 
in the run game. He's so athletic. And granted, he's going to hit throws down the field. I looked up a stat in, preparing, uh, in, in my preparation for this game. He is four of five on throws that travel 40 yards or more downfield. Like no one else in college football is close as far as that level of efficiency on throws that travel that far downfield. He's unbelievable on the downfield throws. He has great touch. He has great accuracy. And I think he has an outstanding receiving core. Nate McCollum, his slot receiver, is getting better and better and better every single week. So much has been made of the Tez Walker situation. He's back. Didn't look very comfortable last week against Syracuse, but he's thrust into the lineup. That's a difficult spot. He's got some length, and I think he can win those contested one-on-one balls if he has those opportunities. And then you look, too, at Bryson Nesbitt, who's their tight end. He's got great length there, and they use him an awful lot in the red zone. So this North Carolina offense, while they haven't been able to run the ball as much as I had hoped they'd be able to run the ball, I do think their perimeter skill has not been as much of a drop-off as I anticipated coming into the season. The offensive line is one question mark for me because they're going against a Miami defensive front that is really athletic. They're really athletic and they're really aggressive, man. They'll bring corner blitzes. They'll bring overloads. They have defensive linemen that will start here and then end up here on the snap. I mean, they do a lot. On the defensive side, I think Lance Gidry has done a remarkable job in creating disruption for opposing offenses and getting a lot of hits on the opposing quarterback. The secondary, I think, is a bit of a question mark. Cam Kinchins is back. He's obviously an All-American contender, but it will be worth watching whether or not this North Carolina offensive line can block this Miami defensive front because of all the pressures that they're going to bring. And if they start to heat up Drake May, they did... Pitt, for the most part, did a pretty good job hitting Drake May. If they hit him, how much of an effect will that have on North Carolina's offense? It should be an amazing game. I, of course, am calling it, so I will not give a pick. But I know that that game is going to come down to the wire on Saturday night. Also on Saturday night, Joe Tessitore, loyal listener, so give him a shout, alongside Jesse Palmer and company with Katie George on the sideline, will be in Baton Rouge for Auburn at LSU. This will be 7 o'clock Eastern time on ESPN. Auburn's coming off a bye week, and it's been really important, I think, for them to get healthy. And they've had a bunch of issues. Auburn has in staying healthy this year. Luke Deal's dealt with some stuff. Their starting guard, Cam Stutz, has, has dealt with a few things. Damari Alston, their running back, has had a shoulder injury since AM. Wide receiver Javarius Johnson has had a hamstring. They've dealt with it. I mean, defensively, they've had a lot as well. They're already without their starting linebacker, Austin Keys and Nickel Keontae Scott. They also lost Mosai and Nasil Kite for the rest of the year in the Georgia game. And then Jalen Simpson's dealing with the bruised calf. So they've had like a ton of injuries Auburn has. So over the bye week, it's like, hey, what do you want Auburn to work on? Well, how about you just work on getting in the training room and getting healthy? Because that might give you the best chance to be successful in this game. Now, Auburn's trying to create some balance offensively. And I think that is a huge part of how they're going to try to attack LSU because LSU on defense has struggled. There's no denying that, but Auburn has been pretty good running the football. 200 yards a game or so, about 21st in college football, whereas LSU's defense allowing 163 yards per game, that's 96th nationally on that side of the ball. As far as yards per carry, LSU's given up five yards a carry. That's 119th nationally. Virginia Tech's the only Power 5 team that's worse than that. So I think Auburn's recipe in this one, they have to shorten the game. If you try to put Peyton Thorne and Robbie Ashford out there in the quarterback tandem that they've kind of gone about it with, if they try to go in a shootout, they're not going to win. Like the last two opponents against LSU basically said, hey man, go ahead, make it a track meet and we'll, we'll come out score you, outscore you. Now Ole Miss had success and was able to get it done. Missouri, not so much. So if it becomes a track meet, that is not good for Auburn. Auburn's passing attack against LSU secondary. We usually highlight the good versus good matchups in the game. How about bad versus bad in this one? This passing offense averages 156 yards per game. That's 119th in the country. Not good. I don't know if they've yet to find the go-to receiver. Now they have Rivaldo Fairweather, who I think is the toughest matchup, kind of at a tight end hybrid role. Jay Fair actually leads Auburn with 18 catches. Uh, and then Shane Hooks is the only re receiver on the roster outside of the uh, aforementioned two that has more than 100 yards receiving this year. 
but he only has eight catches for 106 and a touchdown. So I think they got to find a weapon that can take advantage of this defensive secondary because this group struggles a lot with difference makers on the perimeter. Luther Burden got off last week. Theo Weiss got off last week. You look at what what Ole Miss was able to do a couple weeks ago. That was significant as well. So I think Auburn's got to be able to find holes in the secondary because that's the path of least resistance when going against an LSU defense that has adjusted their front a bit and I would imagine will be better against the run moving forward because of the alterations that they've made in the front seven defensively. As far as LSU's offense is concerned, we all know what Jaden Daniels is. Okay, We all know what Jaden Daniels is. He's amazing and has done an incredible job this year throwing the ball downfield. Started with the Mississippi State game. I mean, he has been lights out this season for an offense that that really needed him to be lights out and for a defense, frankly, that needed him to be lights out as well. But Logan Diggs' emergence over the last four games has been significant. You've looked at just how his reps have increased. In the last four games, he went from nine carries to 14 to 19 to 24 last week against Missouri. And the efficiency is also getting better as well. So it appears like that run game has taken some of the pressure off of Jaden Daniels here over the last few weeks. Will that continue against an Auburn defense that I think is pretty stout against the run. Look, the trends in this one, LSU's gone over the total in 10 consecutive games. It's the longest active streak in the FBS, and all five of Auburn's games against AP-ranked opponents have gone over the total since the start of last year. So if you're looking at trends, it would appear as though it's going to be a high-scoring affair. Meanwhile, LSU has covered four of the last five games as a home favorite. They're a heavy favorite in this one, 11 and a half points in favor of the LSU Tigers. I like LSU to get this one done. I also don't think it's going to be as high scoring as some people might think because I don't think Auburn is going to be able to create that type of problem for LSU defensively. I think LSU is going to completely sell out against the run. And I think LSU will dare Auburn to try to win the one-on-ones on the perimeter that Auburn has not consistently won. I think LSU wins this game comfortably at home, but this rivalry, at least over the last handful of years, has been chaotic. So sit back and enjoy the action there on the bayou at night. Every college football season, Goodyear knows the importance of winning on the road. The road will always demand confidence the confidence to handle whatever the journey brings and to perform under tough conditions. And just like the players and fans of college football, Goodyear is ready. Are you ready for the road? Visit Goodyear.com to find the right Goodyear tires for whatever road you're on this season. Goodyear, more driven. Now, let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac, weighing heavy on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue and ready for the play. And... Boom! Añejo Tequila came in with a smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good! The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is Hypnotic and Tequila season. Hypnotic Liqueur, Bardstown, Kentucky, 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. All right, a few other games involving some of the top teams that we'll be keeping a close eye on. Number one, Georgia heads to Vanderbilt. That'll be Saturday at noon Eastern time. I believe it's on CBS. Don't quote me on that, but I believe that's where it's at. I think CBS has a doubleheader this week. Now, Georgia has been really successful from preventing opponents from attacking them through the air. Through six games, they're 12th nationally in passing yards allowed. And... I think it's going to be kind of interesting to kind of watch the back end because there have been some question marks, at least coming into the season about, well, how do you replace Keely Ringo? How do you replace Chris Smith? Those guys were really good. I think Keely Ringo, not quite as good as Chris Smith, but either way, it was a pretty talented group in the back end. Well, Dalen Everett's come in, done a great job. You move Tyke Smith into the star spot where Bullard has now moved to the safety spot and become a complete difference maker. So I'll be watching the back end in this one for Georgia going against a Vandy offense that's averaging 275 passing yards a game and coming off a Florida game where they threw for 280 and a couple touchdowns. So this Vandy offense is pretty decent throwing the football, but Vandy's 0-8 against the spread against AP top 15 since the start of the 2017 season. So Georgia, meanwhile, has covered five consecutive games against Fandy. So what gives in that one? Indiana at number two, Michigan. Lines 34, total 49 and a half. This will be Saturday at noon Eastern time. Full disclosure, I don't know what network it's on. I apologize. But either way, I didn't write it down. I should have written it down. I apologize. Anyways, I want to watch the interior of the Michigan defensive line. And, and 
you're probably asking why. I was like, because I've watched everything else with Michigan and I'm so remarkably impressed with where they're at everywhere, but I have not spent enough time watching the interior of the defensive line and they're drawing rave reviews. Chris Jenkins has 16 tackles and a pick this year. Mason Graham completely dominated Minnesota despite playing with a club on his left hand. They rotate a bunch of guys in the front. They brought a ton. Chris Jenkins, Mason Grant, Kenneth Grant, Rayshon, Benny, Cam Goot. Like all these guys earn a ton of playing time. So I really kind of just want to watch that group and focus exclusively on that group because frankly, I don't think Indiana has enough to keep this thing competitive whatsoever. A trend in this one, all four of Michigan's home games have gone under the total this year. The team down south, as Michigan would refer to, that would be number three, Ohio State, heading to Purdue. This will be Saturday noon as well. I'm going to watch the continued evolution of Jim Knowles' defense in this one. They're going against an air raid style of attack at Purdue. Graham Harrell and Hudson Card, we kind of know what the air raid looks like, right? But if you look at Ohio State, they've kind of started to evolve. Now, if you look at Jim Knowles over the last handful of years, he's a guy that wants to throw blitzes at you, man. He wants to just pressure you and heat you up and do all kinds of stuff on you. Well, if you actually look at how many times they blitzed Maryland, there were 47 dropbacks by Maryland, and Ohio State blitzed on just seven dropbacks. That's a rate of about 15%. That is not normal. But it's becoming more normal for Jim Knowles because according to him, he said, I have great players. I have great players. I don't need the scheme to dictate what we're doing defensively. Like I'd rather be maybe a little bit more conservative and let my players be great. So we're seeing a little bit less of the exotic things he's done in the past and a little bit more traditional, which is allowing the Ohio State players to play really fast. And the results have been excellent because if you look at just how they've played defensively up to this point, I would anticipate this growth on defense to continue and those players to just play smart, sound, solid football and let their skill set and talent level take over. That's what I'll be watching this one. Ohio State is 11-2 and against the spread in October under Ryan Day. So something to keep in mind there. Arkansas travels to Tuscaloosa. That'll be noon Eastern time on ESPN. The big one in this one, I just want to see Alabama start fast. I mean... If you look at you know, how they've played so far this year, they haven't exactly lit it up in the first half of football games. I mean, the best example might be the Ole Miss game. You know, it just just something in the first half, and obviously AM going into halftime with a with a deficit there. They just haven't started really fast this year. Well, meanwhile, Arkansas, on the other hand, they've been a really good starting football team. Now they've lost four in a row. Uh they're 0-3 against the SEC. They've Three of those losses obviously have been by a single possession. But if you look at Arkansas this year against BYU, Arkansas was up 14-0 in the first quarter. If you look at LSU, they were up 13-3 in the second quarter. You look at AM, the Hogs were up 3-0 at the end of the first quarter. Obviously, not a huge margin there, but still, they started faster than AM did in the game. And then against Ole Miss, they were up 7-0 in the first quarter. And then they obviously took a 20 to 17 lead in the fourth, but they give up 10 in a row to ultimately lose the game. So Arkansas has been a fast starting football team. They just can't finish. Meanwhile, Bama has been a bit of a slow starting football team that's finishing really, really well in the second half of games. I want to see that flip for the tie this week. And can they get off to a fast start against the Arkansas Razorbacks? Trends in this game, Arkansas is six and one against the spread in the last seven games following a straight up loss. And Arkansas is nine and three against the spread as a road underdog since the start of the 20 season. Bama giving up about 20 in that one. Cal travels to Utah Saturday, three o'clock Eastern time. Utah about a two touchdown favorite in this game. The question here is, will Cam Rising make his 2023 debut or will Nate Johnson asked, be asked to you know lead the Utah offense that's been, I guess for lack of a better word, floundering? Uh, now it's intriguing because you look at just kind of how Cal's going to perform. I, I don't envision a scenario where Cal scores more than 20 points in this game. This is a ferocious defense that is really, really good. And it's been a long time since a freshman quarterback went into Rice-Eccles Stadium and played well. That one guy was Justin Herbert back in 2016. And with all due respect to Fernando Mendoza, he's not Justin Herbert. So I think Cam Rising will return. I think Utah will win this game convincingly. 
because Utah is a seven and one against the spread as a double digit favorite since the start of the 22 season. Just something to keep in mind. Syracuse at Florida State. Obviously, Florida State number four team in the country. They're a 17 and a half point favorite. This will be Saturday, noon Eastern time on ABC. What I want to see in this one, I want to see Jared versus Wrecking Havoc. Now, he's been amazing against the run. But for whatever reason, the defensive end sack numbers just haven't been there. But partly because they've played against some mobile quarterbacks, you know, whether it be BC or or against Clemson or uh, you know, against some of the other teams they've faced. They've faced some mobile quarterbacks. Jaden Daniels. Uh, well, they have another mobile quarterback this week in Garrett Schrader. So if you look at just how Jared Verse has been performing in the pass rush, it, it hasn't really been there. It took to the fifth game of the year against Virginia Tech for him to finally get on the board in the sack category. So now that, that the lid is off, if you will, will Jared Verse start to take over games? He's already been amazing this year. I think he's a bona fide top 10 pick, no doubt. But I want to see him start to produce from a sack standpoint the way we anticipated him producing coming into this year. Told you this one last week. It was an absolute lock, stock, and barrel. Syracuse is 0-6 against the spread following a straight-up loss at the start of last season. They were 0-5 last week. Now they're 0-6. And Syracuse has gone under the total in five of their six games this year. Just something to keep in mind there. And finally, Louisville at Pitt is on, I think, the CW. This is Saturday at 7, 6.30. Eastern time. Just something to keep a note here. We've talked long about how much Pitt has struggled this year. Quarterback change. I do think they're pretty good up front defensively. I do think they're pretty good on the perimeter at corner. Problem is their offense has been totally lethargic. Will Veyer, Christian Veyer, transferred for Penn State, now the starter at Pitt, will he be able to provide a bit of a spark? They need one badly because they've been inconsistent running the football and the passing game has not been consistent whatsoever with Phil Dracovic under center. Louisville, can they show maturity? Last week was a massive win. A massive win against Notre Dame. They looked amazing in the process. Now they're just an eight-point favorite on the road at Pitt, a team that has yet to beat an FBS team this year. Their one win against Wofford. They're in the FCS. Pitt is eight and two against the spread following a bye week since the start of the 2018 season. And Louisville is 8-17 and 17 against the spread on the road since the start of the 2018 season. So take that into account when looking at that number and saying, man, Louisville undefeated on the road at Pitt, only laying 7.5 or 8? Oh, man, give me Louisville for all, all the marbles. Just know that the trends might favor Pitt in this one when it comes to covering the spread. Number 23, Kansas heads to Stillwater to take on the Oklahoma State Cowboys. It'll be Fox Saturday, 3.30 Eastern time. Kansas is going to be starting Jason Beam again. He has started the last couple games as Jalen Daniels is still sidelined with back tightness. Just so you know, Oklahoma State, I didn't think they were very good coming into last week. I've now changed my opinion, and I look at the trends. It supports Oklahoma State being super competitive in this game. Just a three-point line in favor of the Jayhawks. Oklahoma State's 3-0 and against the spread as a home dog since the start of last year. Arizona at Washington State. Washington State, an eight-and-a-half-point favorite. It's be Saturday at 7 o'clock Eastern time. The Cougars have dominated the series. Uh, they've outscored Arizona by a combined 182 to 53 in 2016, 2018, 2021. So obviously three games over the last six years that Washington State has handled Arizona. I would imagine though that Arizona is quite a bit better this year, but I don't know if they're going to get to the point where they can score the same way they scored last week. Will Noah Fafita, if he is the guy this weekend, will he be as good this week as he was last week? Because if he is, I think Arizona will keep this thing really, really close. Arizona, one of the best marks in college football, 5-1 and one against the spread this year, including 3-0 and oh as a underdog. Uh, Missouri at Kentucky. This will be 3.30 Eastern time on the SEC Network. Kentucky reeling after last week's performance. Did not play well at all. On the road at Georgia, it was a struggle, a real struggle. And prior to last week, Missouri was a number one ranked run defense in the SEC. We know what Kentucky does. They want to run the football featuring Ray Davis. Can Devin Leary take some of the pressure off that rushing attack? He missed a lot of open receivers last week against Georgia. He can't do that against Missouri because you know Missouri is going to completely sell out 
against the run. Kentucky's 16-8-1 against the spread as a home favorite since the start of the 2019 season. They are a two-and-a-half-point favorite in this game. NC State is on the road at Duke. Duke, look at what they've done in the past. 4-0 against the spread following a straight-up loss under Mike Elko, and they've covered four consecutive games in ACC play. They're a slight favorite at home Saturday, 8 o'clock Eastern time on the ACC network. NC State is a tough one to pinpoint, man. The offense looked really good against a solid Marshall team. But was that the anomaly performance? Or is that a sign of things to come for the Wolfpack? I think it's a tough spot here for NC State going to Duke, where Duke has been excellent. And NC State has not been very good on the road since the start of the 2019 season, just 5-17 and 17 against the spread in those games. And then finally, two games left. Why wouldn't we talk about Colorado? <laughs> now, the logistics clearly favor Stanford in this game. This game will be tomorrow night. It'll be on ESPN. I'm looking forward to the matchup. The logistics favor Stanford. They've had two weeks to prepare. And Colorado's playing on a short week after another down-to-the-wire game where we're not sure if Travis Hunter's going to return. He's been out for a few games, obviously, with the lacerated liver. And his presence would really energize a team I think that has kind of had a difficult time summoning the urgency to put Stanford away early. Obviously, Colorado is far more talented than Stanford. They should win this game convincingly, but I think Stanford will hang around in this one for whatever reason. They'll have a good scheme. They'll have a good plan, and I think they'll keep it close. Maybe one of the best games of the entire weekend is Wyoming at Air Force. Air Force is amazing. Is this possible meeting between the two best G5s in college football? I know Liberty might have something to say about that. A couple other teams might have something to say about that. But don't sleep on Wyoming, who's already beaten Texas Tech this year, took Texas to the wire. They were tied with the Longhorns in Austin going into the fourth quarter. And they just beat Fresno State last week. Fresno State has been excellent for quite some time. I like Air Force in the game. I like Air Force convincingly. Why? Air Force has a defense that is untouchable, man. Untouchable one of the best in America. And you're going to think, well, that's because they take the air out of the football. They shrink the game. They run the football. Yeah, they do. But if you look at their yards per play allowed, they're top six in the country. And all the teams that are in front of them are the teams that you would expect. Ohio State, Oregon, UCLA, uh, Penn State. Like these are the Clemson. Those are the five teams in front of them. So Air Force is the real deal on the defensive side of the football. And Wyoming, will they be able to create enough offensively to ultimately beat the Air Force Falcons? I don't think they will. I like Air Force to win the game convincingly. Should be pretty awesome. And then finally, before we get you out of here, we'll tell you about some of the new Big 12 teams. Will they get a win against the old Big 12 teams? There's three chances this weekend. Houston hosts West Virginia, the Holgerson Bowl, if you will. West Virginia has gotten off to a surprising start. Four and one, obviously have won four in a row, have looked good in the process. Houston has been very, very up and down. It's a close game on a Thursday night. I think Houston's going to have some tricks up their sleeve for West Virginia. You know that this is one that Neil Brown has to win, but don't think for a second. Dana Holgerson and his staff haven't spent some extra time preparing for his old team. Be interesting to watch. Cincinnati will host Iowa State. Iowa State has showed some life of late. Big win last week. Cincinnati, it's a really good defensive front for Cincinnati. Will they get it done against the Clones? And then BYU is at TCU. TCU loses Chandler Morris for an extended period of time, tweaked the knee. BYU, I think right now, is probably one of the better teams that nobody's really talking about at the moment. Their record doesn't necessarily reflect how good I think they can be. So I think BYU could go on the road to Fort Worth and get a win against the Horn Frogs. Thanks so much for being with us. It's another great edition of Always College Football. I love our Thursday show, man. It's so much fun to just get in the weeds and to talk about the games, talk about the matchups, highlight some players that could be key difference makers throughout the game. So we so appreciate you guys being here. Like I told you at the beginning, if you're on Apple podcast, or if you're on Spotify, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us a rating. It means a lot to us. We put a lot of time into our breakdowns, put a lot of time into our show. If you guys could leave us a rating. That'd mean an awful lot. If you're on Apple podcast, if you could leave us a review, we've seen the reviews and we so appreciate you guys reaching out. And to the nice lady that was really concerned about my, my allergies on Sunday's show, 
Yes, I had bad allergies. It was really, really bad. But I promise you, I have it under control. Just a little daily 24-hour allergy pill, take care of it. At that point, though, when I taped the show, it had not kicked in. So I appreciate your concern. I am healthy. I am good to go. We so appreciate all of you guys, though, for all the support that you've shown the show. If you're on ESPN's YouTube channel, hit that thumbs up right below. And you can also subscribe to the ESPN College Football channel as well. For all of us here at Always College Football, for Mark, Jake, Jack, I'm Greg. We hope you have a terrific weekend. And remember, it's always college football. Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcasts.